Let's turn to Titus chapter two or chapter three this morning. Titus chapter three, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer real quick. Lord, we do pray that this morning as we begin to open the word of life, we would remember that we have not come to hear the wisdom of men, to hear, to have our ears tickled but to listen to wisdom from heaven, to hear divine words and to have them explained. And so Lord, I pray that you would move me aside and that you'd speak to all of our hearts this morning. It is in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So um, as we mentioned, this weekend is July 4th and I don't, I don't always do a sermon uh, based on July 4th. In fact, uh, I often get really nervous about July 4th sermons, to be honest with you, because um, several years ago, uh, I've just always had trouble preaching American holidays from the scriptures because, you know, different culture, different time. It doesn't always kind of match up. <clears throat> and so there's some obvious ones like Christmas and Thanksgiving, but, you know, some of them is just kind of hard to match up. And, uh, this particular week, it was like uh, it was like Thursday, and my my secretary was like, "Randy, I didn't have a text, I didn't have a sermon, I had nothing ready." And my secretary was like, "Randy, I've got to print the bulletin. You've got to give me something." And so I finally did something that I am not very proud of. I have never done since that time because I definitely learned my lesson. I basically I basically got out a concordance. And I looked up every reference to freedom or liberty in the Bible, wrote every verse down, put them in some sort of logical order and said, I'll just, I'll just content myself with the fact that I'm going to be preaching probably my worst sermon this weekend. And so I did. I wrote that sermon in one hour. It usually takes me about 25 hours to over a three week period to write a sermon. So, um, so I, this one I wrote in one hour. So obviously I was not very proud of it, uh, but it was gonna get me through July 4th. And then I would just go, I would ask the Lord for forgiveness and then I would move on uh, to the next Sunday. Well, uh, that Sunday came around, my, my brother-in-law was my worship leader. His name was John and, and uh, he was getting ready to go. And one of my elders walked up to me and said, hey, by the way, I want you to know John's here this morning. Now, I didn't think anything of it because John is my worship leader and my brother-in-law and he's standing up there and I can see it. And uh, so I'm like, okay, no big deal, you know, whatever. I get up in the pulpit and I look out in the audience and, uh, and there he is 
I should probably mention that elder was John MacArthur's brother-in-law. And John MacArthur was, sta was standing in the sanctuary about to hear literally the worst sermon I have ever written in my life. So needless to say, I was, I was not, I was pretty frightened. And, uh, he, and he's a very gracious guy. He told me afterwards, hey, it was a great sermon. Uh, but then he gave me like a total free pass to his shepherd's conference. He paid for everything. Apparently the sermon was that bad. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, you need all the help you can get. And so, um, so he sent me to the shepherd's conference for, for total, I mean, paid the airfare, food, everything. So... Anyways, but ever since then, I've approached July 4th sermons with a little fear and trepidation. So, um, we're by far the worst sermon I've, I've ever, my, that's my best egg story. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that America's always had kind of an uneasy relationship with religion. I think that's fair to say. We're, we are, we, we celebrate religious freedom and by the way, we do not celebrate religious tolerance. I hear people calling it that today. Uh, we celebrate religious freedom. It was not given to us by our founders. It was understood to be coming from our creator. Uh, by the way, it's not freedom of worship. You hear that today as well. In fact, that's what a lot of people are calling it now. We have the freedom to worship. We can say, we can say and do whatever we want on Sunday, but then when we go out in the culture, we better, we better get in line. It's kind of the mentality. There's always been an uneasiness. And um, I think some of that is self-inflicted. I think it is. Um, there's, there's a lot of Christians today that have this mentality that God has entered into a covenant with America much like or at least similar to what he did with Israel. And they will apply many of the promises given to Israel, they'll apply it to America. And I just don't think that's a very sound biblical understanding of those passages they use. However, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to that to where today it's now considered cool. If you are a faithful Christian, if you are a doctrinal Christian, then you seem to get some kind of enjoyment out of bad-mouthing America. And we're hearing a lot of pastors doing that today. And I would submit to you that neither one is the way to go. We don't want to apply promises to the country that God has never given us. We don't want to do that. But we also want to be thankful. Beloved, it is not unchristian to be thankful for the country you live in, especially when we have so many benefits and so many privileges that we have in, in this country as we do. We get to choose our own leaders. Do you know how rare that is in the history of humanity? We're the first ones that came up with it. And so it was quite, a, uh, quite an achievement that has lasted the, the course of time. And so we do wanna be thankful for it. The church has always understood and the scriptures say that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Our citizenship is in, is in heaven. It is with God. 
That is our primary citizenship. We saw in the scripture reading that he called you who were not a people to be a people. He has made you a nation of priests. He is using those kind of political, geopolitical terms, those national terms to describe his church to describe who we are, that we are now who were not a people of God. We are now a people of God for his purposes and his pleasure. And I will submit to you that that is our first responsibility as children of God. And yet at the same time, we are also citizens of the United States. And we also partake in the privileges and the responsibilities. And our goal as citizens of the United States is to be good citizens. In fact, I believe that Christians ought to be the best citizens of whatever country they live in to the extent that they're able to. Now, if the book of Revelation teaches us anything, it is that eventually every nation will turn from God. Every nation will. And that is, a, that is simply, no matter how the nation started, every nation will eventually turn from God. And when our nation takes that turn, beloved, we cannot go with them. We must stand our ground upon the truth of Scripture. But thank God that time hasn't happened just yet. And we are so thankful for that. And so there's a clear train of biblical thought throughout the scriptures that, that in Genesis 12, beginning with, uh, beginning with the promise to Abraham, God says that I will make you a blessing to all nations to where all the world will be blessed th through you. That is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We have Jeremiah 29, verses five through seven, where Jeremiah is preaching that Babylonians are coming, you're going to be slaves, and so what do we do? How are you gonna live there? He says, essentially, be good citizens of Babylon. Build houses, raise families, do all of that. Pray for the welfare of the city that you live in, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare as well. Beloved, it is incumbent upon us to pray for our nation because as the Lord blesses our nation, he will bless us. That is not an unbiblical principle. It is not cool to badmouth the country that you live in. And by the way, it's also not cool to badmouth your national leaders, no matter what political party they happen to fall in. That's not cool either. Our, our mandate is to pray for our leaders, to pray for the king, to pray for the emperor. And that doesn't mean we necessarily agree with every decision, but we don't attack them. I see preachers today on Facebook saying things about political leaders that quite frankly, if they were my pastor, I would, I would literally have to leave that church for some of the things they're saying, using foul language, just all kinds of stuff. Getting, let's not get so politically riled up that we lose our testimony. And so we have to remember these things. The point is this, beloved. Sinners are not our enemies, and be careful that we do not make the mission field the battlefield. Don't get so caught up in fighting the cause that we forget to reach the people who are trapped by the sin. That we forget to have compassion. That we forget to have love. 
And so Paul's instruction to Titus is, I think, very is very helpful for us to understand some of these issues. He, he tells them, instruct the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to the extent that we're able to, as far as possible, submit and be obedient, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy to all people. Did you hear that? To all people. That's to everyone regardless if they are part of our political party or not, regardless of whether they agree with us on every jot and tittle, we show courtesy toward them. And so we need to do that. One writer says that the New Testament churches in the Roman Empire were small islands in the great vast sea of paganism. And I think we're kind of getting back to that point today, that New Testament churches are gonna be small islands in the vast sea of cultural paganism. And so how do we handle that? The truth is we have a unique blessing in America to live in such a strong Christian influence in our past, some of which is, is better than others. But yet, as we're watching that influence decline before our eyes, the temptation is to get mad. The temptation is to get angry, to get even with the guy who pushes down the Ten Commandments monument. He drove over it in Little Rock. We want to get angry and get even with that guy. We want to do all of these other things. And yet, Paul says, show perfect courtesy to all. Speak evil of no one. So, beloved, our call as citizens of the United States is to be a good, productive citizen. Is to be a good, productive citizen. How can we do this? Especially in light of everything going on, how can we remember to do that? So that's what we find in these instructions that were given. We're gonna see three different things this morning. How do we remember to be, how do we become a good citizen to obey these commands, to speak evil to no one, to show perfect courtesy to all, to be submissive to authority and leaders to the extent that we're able to? How do we do that? There's three instructions that we have here. Number one, by, in verse three, by remembering who we were. By remembering who we were. Look in, look in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. These are very descriptive terms of who we were. That every single one of us, maybe not everything on this list, but somewhere on this list, every single one of us fell into one of these categories. That we were these things. Paul uses a number of these different things to describe who we once were. And so for, he breaks them down into two categories. Number one, by remembering who we were in relation to God. We were foolish, which is without knowledge. That, that doesn't necessarily mean someone who has head problems, but someone who has heart problems. In other words, they are determined to be against God, not just someone who doesn't understand, but someone who refuses to understand. You ever meet someone like that? 
It's not just that they don't know, they just don't want, they, they don't even wanna know. They don't even want to understand. They're perfectly capable of knowing God's truth. But Paul points out that at a time, you and I were at a place where we refused to learn it, refused to know it. How often do you get mad when the preacher says something from the scriptures that you don't necessarily agree with? We do that, don't we? I do that all the time. I hear another preacher, I'm like, no. <laughs> I do. I mean, uh, am I the only sinner in the room? I'm just wondering, so. Of course we do that. Beloved, if your Bible never disagrees with you, then you're not reading it correctly. <laughs> it's to challenge you. It's to cause you to grow. Growth means change. And so often we do that. Of course, this leads to our behavior. We're disobedient. We were disobedient to the truth. I walked in rebellion to the Lord. Now that showed itself in different ways. But ultimately, we were watching, we were walking and living for ourselves and not for the glory of God. That's who we were. And the way we walked with the world, we, we, we were led astray because we refused to know the knowledge, the truth of God. We were led astray by the world. The Bible says we were slaves. John 8, 34, whoever sins is a slave to sin. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, whatever made us feel good, whatever we wanted to be right. That's what we submitted to. That's who we were. We were slaves to sin. And not only that, but our relationship to others, look what some of these words he uses, malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. They didn't even need Facebook for that. They were able to do it without social media. It's just made a whole lot easier today, a whole lot more public. That's who we were. Malice, mean-spirited toward others, envy, jealousy toward them and the things that they had. And we were hated and we hated one another. It was so bad it even made him cry. And so this is who we were, beloved. Exodus chapter 23, verse nine. He says, be kind to the sojourner for you yourself remember what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. Be kind to the foreigner. You remember what it was like. Beloved, do you remember what it was like before you were saved? Do you remember where you came from? How you had no hope? How your life was just a, a roller coaster of, of right and trying to do good and failing? How many uh, New Year's Eve resolutions failed in your lifetime? How many times did we try to turn over a new life and change ourselves only to find total failure? We remember what that was like, don't we? You know the heart of a stranger. You know the heart of a slave to be cut off from your home. And the same logic applies here. We remember what it was like to be lost. We remember what it was like to not be God's people, to be cut off from God, to feel the pull of our favorite sins. And we still feel the temptations of those sins pulling on us, do we not? 
We still feel those things. Paul is emphasizing that we are needy people in need of God's grace just as much as everyone else. We're not on a higher plane than anyone else just because we happen to find salvation in Christ. Beloved, we are a blessed people among others. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find food. We are starving people who found the feast of God and inviting others to come into it. Our understanding of our need of grace is gonna be directly related to how we treat others, beloved. Our understanding of grace is gonna be directly related to how we view others. Luke chapter 18, verse nine says that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Beloved, if we trust in ourselves that we are righteous, then we can only treat others with contempt. There's nowhere else to go from that. I mean, the logic is pretty sound. I pulled my, uh, myself up by my own bootstraps. Why can't you? The logic is sound, is it not? Sola bootstrapsia. Pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That logic makes sense. But, beloved, the truth is, everything we have is all of grace. Our country, the time we're given, every breath that we breathe this morning, it's all of grace. And so, when we remember how needy we are of daily grace, beloved, it becomes much easier to remember to treat others with compassion to treat others with love, even when they wrong us. And even when we see the direction that they're going in in life. And speaking of daily grace, we not only remember who we were, but we remember what God did. In verses four and six, look what he says. He says, but when the goodness and loving appearance of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says here in verse five. He says, we remember that God saved us, that we were lost. We were the ones who were out of fellowship. We were the ones who were enemies of God. There's a beautiful song, uh, Jesus Thank You is the name of it. And it says that we were once your enemies, but you have brought us to your table. Thank you. The one who, who took and found his enemies, bought them out of the slave market, made them his own servants, and then adopted them as his own children, brought them into his own house, feeds him of his own table, and gives him, showers them with all of his own love. That is the God who saved us. That is the one who brought us to himself and he did it through his own love for us. Notice, there's no hesitation on God's part. No hesitation whatsoever. But his love is expressed through goodness and loving kindness toward us. He took the initiative. He loved us first, not by any works of ours. None whatsoever. <laughs> there was no righteousness on our part. There was no value on our part. 
but instead he saved us completely and totally of his own mercy. I heard a teacher, a Christian teacher, supposedly Christian teacher, on, uh, on TV a while back saying that, you know, God shed his, Jesus shed his blood for you. He loved you because he looked at you and he saw greatness in you. Well, that's something to boast about, isn't it? Well, God loved me. God saw that I was such a great guy that he decided to slaughter his own son for me. Beloved, if that's what you believe, then you're not in the gospel. If that's what you believe, you're not saved. And this is the love of God, not that we loved him, but that he loved us first. This is how God demonstrates his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, God elected to, to sacrifice his only son for us. That's the gospel. Not that we were so great, but that he is so great. That's the gospel. He took the initiative. He loved us first and he saved us not according to merit. He saved us not according to what he saw us do. He saved us not according to anything else. He saved us because of his own mercy and nothing else. Beloved, there's not gonna be, we're not gonna be walking up around in heaven one day, straightening our suit jacket, looking around saying, huh, look at what I accomplished. Look what I did. Oh, I'm so glad I made the right decision. I'm so glad I did this or that. No, we're gonna be walking around heaven praising God for all eternity because he did the work. He did it all. He came to us. And by the way, it's not just the father that did his own love for us, but look in verse five, the latter part, by the washing and renewal, the, gener the regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit. He took away the old. He put in the new. He washed our sins away through this regeneration. He made us new. He has and is renewing us into new life in Christ. God, our Savior, appeared, and he saved us not because of works, but by his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's the work of the Son. Do you see the Trinitarian salvation there? We have the love of the Father. We have the regeneration of the Spirit, and we have the provision of the Son. There's no sense in which Christ had to convince the Father to save us. There's no, there's no idea that, that Jesus had to come against his Father's wishes. Or, or once again, I heard some supposedly Christian teacher say that, he, that Jesus had to keep secrets from the Father in order to save us. Beloved, that is heresy. No, our salvation, who are you saved by? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit? The answer is yes. There is a divine Trinitarian unity in our salvation. 
that everything that Christ accomplished for us was chosen and given to us and provided for us by the Father and is applied to us by the Spirit. And so we remember that everything we have in salvation, whatever good there is in us, is a gift from God alone. And when you remember that, again, it it helps you to not treat others with malice, right? It helps you to not be so angry at the world when they sin, why do we get so mad when sinners act like sinners? Why do we get so mad when lost people act like lost people? Beloved, we need to look on that with compassion, with the same compassion that God looked upon us and chose to save us. The salvation we have in Christ is the foundation, motivation, and the model for how we treat others for how we treat everyone. The gospel empowers us to follow him. Our love, his love for us entices us to follow him. His life and ministry is the example for us to follow him. And the spirit empowers us to follow him. (coughs) Everything we have. Jesus lived perfectly before God. He loved God completely. He loved others selfishly. And then he died for us in order that the promise of God could be ours. And all of those who would accept Christ as their savior made it available for all. So we remember what God did for us. We remember who we were. And we also remember whose we are. We remember who we were. We remember what God did. We remember whose we are. In verse seven, it says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says that we are justified by grace. That is a word that, that's one of those three o'clock in the morning words the word justified, justification, and, and all the related words. You know what I mean by three o'clock in the morning? You've heard me say this before, right? Three o'clock in the morning word. In other words, if, if I break into your house at three o'clock in the morning, don't shoot me, but if I was to break into your house at three o'clock in the morning, wake you up out of a dead sleep and ask you to define justification, you ought to be able to, just like that. It should be that close to your heart. And then you can shoot me. But, I mean, I broke in your house, come on. But, The word justified, it means to be declared as righteous. In other words, God looks at a sinner. God looks at a person who is an enemy. God looks at a person who is unclean. God looks at you and me, but then he looks at the merit of Christ and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And based upon that righteousness, he declares you and me to be righteous so that we are saved not by any merit that is within us, but we are saved solely and totally by the merits of Christ alone. That's why we sing, that's why we sing that wonderful song, behold the throne of God above for God, the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 
that we are saved by the merits and by the righteousness of Christ. And then his blood is applied to us. Our sin is placed on him. He took our curse. We take his blessing and we become God's adopted children. <coughs> we are declared to be righteous by, by Christ. It is the summary of all that Christ has done for us. And we need to remember that the source of our righteousness is that we are righteous in Jesus, not by voting for the right party, not by doing, being good citizens, but we are righteous in Christ alone. And then that righteousness works itself out in us so that we are good citizens. And we do a vote according to values. And we do all of those other things. But the righteousness from Christ comes first. There is no political party on this earth that can save you. There is no election that will save a soul. There is no president who will ever be perfect, no matter, no matter how much they may agree or disagree with our morals. None of those things can save us, beloved. Only the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins. We are in Christ and our salvation is in him and so that we are heirs according to hope. Hope of what? Eternal life. Our hope is not in this world. It's not in any law that can be passed. It's not in any political activism or social justice or whatever the, the latest fanfare that's out there, whatever is the latest thing on social media that I'm supposed to be mad at this week. Our righteousness is not in any of those things, but it is on Christ alone. So yes, we mourn, beloved, for the sins of our age. We mourn for it, but we don't despair. We don't despair. There is always hope. Do you understand that this morning? I, I talked to so many young people college age kids. We're talking about kids that are, are beginning their life. They haven't even gotten out in the real world yet, and yet they've lost all their hope in the future. I saw a, uh, I saw a study one time where the kids today that are graduating college for the first time believe that their future is not as bright as their parents is. And you know, there's a lot of reasons to believe that. There is. But that's not our hope. And beloved, there is, there, are, there is always hope. There's always hope. Why? Because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you can take America away tomorrow. And we will still be citizens of heaven. Our nation, our government could turn against us and come and shut down this building tomorrow and Calvary Baptist Church would still be here. 
They can come in with whatever they want. Beloved, you cannot stop the gospel and you cannot stop eternity. Many people have tried and for 2,000 years they have failed. And they will always fail until our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So yes, we mourn for the sins of this earth, but we do not despair, beloved. I'm, I'm concerned over the nation that my children is growing up in. Yes, I am. And I'm especially concerned for the nation my grandchildren will grow up in, but it's not hopeless. I have all the hope in the world for them. Listen, I love being an American. I'm so thankful to be a citizen of this country, but my hope is not in America. I love having the freedom to assemble here this morning, but you know what? Tomorrow, if they took that freedom away, you know where I'm gonna be next Sunday? I'm gonna be right here. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they say. If they take away that freedom, I'm still gonna do it. Hey, I've always wanted to try jail ministry. So I'm good. My hope is not set on the things of this world, but the things to come. It doesn't matter who becomes president or what laws are passed or what happens. It's not going to change my hope. Oh, beloved, remember that. We're coming into an election season. Remember that. It does not matter who will be elected president next year. It does not matter to our hope. It does not matter to our faith. Do you, do you understand that? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. I'm not saying that but I am saying it does not matter to my faith because Jesus will still be king. That's what matters. That's what matters. So we're citizens by two kingdoms, one by birth, one by grace, one a democracy, the other a divine monarchy. By the way, God's kingdom is not a democracy. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? God's kingdom is not a democracy, all right? God's kingdom has one king, it is Jesus Christ. One is temporary, the other is eternal. Beloved, we have a faith that explains all the ills of this world and we have the love in our hearts that do not depend on the good of this world. We have the love in our hearts that transcends this world and transcends everything we have and all of this is available in Jesus Christ. All of it. So my question to you this morning is that, do you know Christ? Are you putting your hope in the wrong things? Are you putting your hope in things that are temporary? Or are you putting your hope in what is eternal? You say, well, I, my, my confession is that my hope is in eternal. Okay, but what does your actions say? What does your behavior on Facebook say? What does your behavior in social media say? What all of these things, I'm not saying don't post things that are, I'm not, I'm not saying don't post or whatever, but my question is, are you attacking people? Or are you showing them the grace of Jesus Christ? You say, well, they attack me. Yeah, they're gonna do that. Just get used to it. And you know what? It's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. But that's okay. You know what they did to Jesus? I've never had a bad day. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had days I didn't like, but they've never done to me what they did to Jesus. And you know what? 
Jesus did it voluntarily because he did it for me. And so I can only hope that I could identify with Christ in suffering. And I hope that you can too. We bless those who curse us. We pray for those who spitefully use us. And we remember who we were. We remember what God has done. And we remember whose we are. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your love for us. There's one here this morning that does not know Christ as their savior. Lord, they can have this peace that passes all understanding. The peace that is there no matter what happens in this world. Lord, I pray that has been communicated this morning. I, again, I have a difficult time with, with um, trying to elaborate on truths that I wanted to speak this morning. But Lord, you work through weakness. You work powerfully. And I pray you would do so this morning. Or if there's one here who does not know Christ, may, may you get a hold of their hearts. May you convict them of their sin. May you empower them for repentance. And Lord, may they turn to trust in you in saving faith. May today be the day. What, what a wonderful weekend to celebrate our freedom by having true freedom in Christ. And that is the only freedom that cannot be taken away from us. So Lord, I pray that we would put our hope in you that we would love you more than anything else. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I would, I would encourage you to come. I won't embarrass you. I won't do anything that will cause you any kind of uh, shame or anything like that. But I just wanna tell you how you can know Christ. And so let's all stand this morning. And if you're here and you wanna know Christ as savior, I encourage you to come down and... Uh, just wait for a couple minutes and, and we can go talk about it. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Randy, my, my activity on uh, social media or whatever has, has, has not reflected that my hope is truly in Christ. I, I turned the mission field into a battlefield and I've, I've, I've sacrificed my testimony, getting mad at things that are temporary. Maybe you want to confess that this morning. Maybe you want to get that right with Christ. You can come down and be prayed for. You don't have to come down. You can do that where you are. But whatever the need is, we invite you to come this morning. Let's just bow our heads for a few minutes. Or just reflect on what's been said.